at times, the Heinz kids have a hard time locking in what their parents want. Anybody else ever, ever relate to that? Huh? I, I have a hard time. And here's the funny part about that whole scenario is, it is not because we don't love each other. It's not because I have lack of love for them that that happens. It's not because they have lack of love for me. We have a hard time connecting sometimes. They have a hard time understanding what I want of them and what I want for them. And most of the time, in my mind, as their father, I have certain things I ask of them that will be good things for them down the road. They have not the ability in some ways to see that. They have sometimes, they, 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 they can't see it. Sometimes they don't see it because they're just busy and things are going on. And sometimes they just absolutely refuse to see it. Huh? My toes are hurting already. Sometimes they can't, sometimes they don't, and sometimes they won't. You get what I mean? We are much like those kids. God has plans and purposes for us, and sometimes we can't see what he's doing, sometimes we don't know what he's doing, and sometimes we refuse to give him what he wants of us so we can get where he wants us to be that's good for us, and not just good for us, it's good for everybody around us when we get to where he wants us to be. It's good, but we can't see it. And I'm gonna, we're going to take a little different jog. I'm kind of a topical kind of a preacher guy, and maybe for the next couple of weeks, we're going to kind of get expository on you. And for those of you guys who are not, you know, not go to Bible college, that means we're going to take a piece of Scripture apart piece by piece. We're going to look at a, couple, look at a few words in there, and we might take a Matter of fact, I only got about halfway through the message first service this morning, and, uh, and just, then just quit. Okay? So we might get done by next week. We might not. I don't know. We're going to look at a little book of Bible called Colossians. And you're going to turn, to, you are going to turn, say I am. I'm going to turn to Colossians chapter 1. So you got lost with the Bible shuffling, see. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at a, look at a letter written to a group of people. And so kind of by way of, of getting into where we're going, let's talk about who this letter is written to first, Okay. Paul, in this story, sometimes we miss God's plan, his provision for us because we don't realize his heart and his mind toward us. And so Paul takes a congregation and he encourages them about his desire for them as an apostle, which here's the big deal about that. He's not just talking about his desire for them. He's talking about God's desire for them. And so let's look at what he has to kind of clarify. Let's talk about who he's writing to, okay? Colossians chapter one, verse two, you'll find just some really simple words. We are, we are writing to God's, according to New Living Translation, we are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And the ninth line is just amazing. May God our Father give you grace and peace. Paul the Apostle with all of his understanding, with all of his journeys, his experience, his wisdom, he, 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 he always starts, it seems like he starts every letter to a group of people that same way. May God grant you grace and peace, man. Don't we need that? We need God's grace. 
And before I go any further, let me just explain to you, grace, grace is what you have, grace is what you need, grace is where you start, and grace is where you end. And peace, I talked to somebody before first service, and I said, how you doing, man? He said, listen, I'm at peace. And I said, well, that's good. He said, he said the road's not smooth, but that's okay. Because we translate peace mean everything's working like it's supposed to. The road is smooth. The journey's good. The sun's shining. The top's down on the convertible. The shades are on, and we're just enjoying life. But really, in Scripture, we talk about peace, scripturally speaking. Peace has absolutely nothing to do with how well things are going. Most of the time, the Bible talks about peace. It has everything to do with how bad things are going and your ability to stay focused in spite of all that. And so we're talking about, he says, I pray, may, may God's grace and peace be granted to you, he writes to this church in Colossae. He says these words. He says, I write to God's holy people. A couple of translations say saints. So let's talk about that for just a minute. The word saints here, in some of our, some of our upbringing, maybe in some of our own mindsets that we're growing, we think in Christianity there's this hierarchy, Right? There's this ladder climbing thing that we go through. And at certain times and certain places, we achieve certain levels of holiness. And in certain realms, we saint people because they've done such work for the kingdom. And when we see that word, that's automatically what we think of. But when, when Paul writes these words, he's not saying that. He calls people holy not because of what they have accomplished, but because of the grace they have embraced. It is not about their attainment. It's about their grasping a hold of God through faith alone that makes them holy people. We think of holy people as being the guy on the mountain with the long robe, the long gray beard, and the long gray hair who's got something to say that none of the rest of us could know anything about. But when Paul writes to people, he's writing saying, you are holy people, not because of you, but because of him. When he writes to you today, he's writing to you today. The Holy Spirit of God right now is conveying a message to you. And part of his message to you is, listen, quit trying to wear yourself out and attain certain levels of holiness. You will never get there. Quit. Because you're wearing yourself out. And probably if you're married, you're wearing your spouse out. And if you've got children, you're probably wearing them out. And you're probably wearing everybody else out around you because you're trying to do something. And you're frustrating yourself. And you're frustrating them. And God says, listen, just embrace me through grace and faith and we'll get somewhere. Is that good stuff? Hey, none of us perfect. I just explained to the DT classes. They were starting, listen, we don't believe in this ladder hierarchy thing that we climb through, through, through faith in Christ. What we, believe in, we believe in this journey that we walk through to, toward Christ together. And some of us are running a little faster pace than others. And some of us are a little further on the journey. And so we reach back and grab people and say, come on, go with us. And there's others who are ahead of us on the, on the walk. And we reach towards them and say, hey, grab my hand and help me, go, help me come where you're going. We're not leaving anybody behind like we're climbing a ladder. We are walking on a journey. We are running a race, Paul said, together. Isn't that good news? So first of all, let's make it a whole, look at your neighbor and say, maybe you should ask him a question. Are you on this journey? Just ask him. Because if they're on the journey, then they're holy people. Now, if they can't answer that question, we need to condemn with something else. Because the grace of Jesus is available to us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us get it together. None of us can attain heaven by ourselves. We need Jesus all the day, every day. He already climbed the ladder for us. In fact, what the Bible says, he is the ladder. 
The angels of God climb up and down him. Remember that story in Genesis? Jacob's ladder, remember that story? That's the person of Christ. He is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. Okay? No way, Jose, any other way. Uh Uh-uh. You're hearing me. And so today, if you're not on the journey, we can start you out right now. It's simple like this. You say, Jesus, I believe you are the way. I believe you are the truth. I believe you are the life. And right now in my heart, I, I, I trust that. I confess it with my mouth. And at that moment, the scriptures tell us, you have been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So now that I've discussed that, it's that simple. It really is. There is no mantra to chant. There's no correct prayer to pray. And in fact, you can't find a sinner's prayer anywhere in Scripture. We've all been through water calls like here's another part we do church. Everybody bow your head, close your eyes. Nobody looking around. If you'd like to embrace this gift of faith, I want you to raise your hand where you are and repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I confess my sin. You won't find those words in Scripture anywhere, I promise. I mean, he wants you to do that, absolutely. But we make salvation a bunch of hoops we got to jump through. The only hoop we have to jump through is grabbing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hoop. There is no correct prayer. All right? There is no proper way. Whether you bowed at an altar, whether you gave your heart to Christ at a crusade, whether you were driving down the road, there is no proper way. It's just you, you believe, you confess, and you receive salvation. It's that simple. That's good stuff. If you don't think it is, it is. It's right, it's right stuff. It's scripture stuff. Okay, so he's talking about these people who are holy people because they've embraced this truth. The next thing you know about Colossae is this. Colossae in of itself, the city these holy people come from, is insignificant. Some theologians say these words. That is the most unimportant city Paul ever wrote to. Why is that good news for us? Because we're sitting in the middle of a cornfield. Even though the rest of the world had overlooked the city of Colossae, the heart and the mind of God was towards them. They had great cities near them. Ephesus and others were right nearby. People would travel there for miles and all sorts of things to be there. And here we are, not in Hallsville, outside of Hallsville. Yeah, exactly. Can anything good come out of Hallsville? You ever try to explain to somebody where Church Triumphant is? So where is your church? Um, go out on 180, drive past St. Trace. When you think you're not going to get there, keep driving. It's technically Kingston, but it ain't even really in Kingston. It's not even really in Hallsville. It's just kind of there. Now look at you like, start at Lowe's, take off down Bridge Street, keep driving. When the odometer gets to 10 miles, you've probably arrived. And that's the honest fact. Like, it's, exactly t- it's exactly 10 miles. We are kind of like foster children. Which is good because we have been given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, right? And he's talking to us. 
We can, tra- we can take the word Colossae out of this thing and we can put Church Triumphant. We can put the people who congregate near Hallsville. We can put individual names who think they've been overlooked, who think that God's not paying attention, who maybe the whole world, maybe your job, maybe your, maybe your, 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 your own family, maybe who have overlooked you and have considered you insignificant. But suddenly today, the heart of God peers down on 4496 State Route 180 and looks into your heart and says, listen, I am for you. I do not overlook you. I know exactly where you are. I know exactly what you've been through. I am with you. Isn't that good news? When God, when everybody else is overlooking the, 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 the people who, who are precious to God's sight, God's heart always focuses in on them. The outcasts, the damaged, the hurting. And the other cool thing about this church, this congregation of believers in Colossae, is they weren't started by some apostle. A lot of the, 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 the letters you'll find written that Paul wrote, he, he had a hand in, in, in bringing them to, to Christ. He had a hand in starting that work. Paul, Paul does not know these people. He's, to our understanding, he had never been to Colossae. And, which is really cool because you know what? You know they think who had a hand in doing that? There's this guy named Epaphras, who was from Colossae. And while Paul was ministering in Ephesus for two years, the gospel and the power of God penetrate the life of a guy that we've only, he's only a byline in scripture. And he takes him and a handful of other people and he does such a work that a new work starts that has nothing to do with what came down from headquarters. It has nothing to do with a church office. or a, It has everything to do with God doing something significant in the heart of an individual who was so burnt with the love of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. It couldn't help but start something new somewhere. Every day, every Sunday you show up, there's these lines up here on this screen and there's the church name and three little words underneath of it. And it says, when disciple send, what letter we're about to read is the epitome of those three words. This guy Epaphras was one to the gospel. He was discipled and he went back and something amazing started in a town that was insignificant by worldly standards, but big on God's map as far as spiritual things were concerned. We should endeavor to want to be a part of something that no man can orchestrate, only God can. And how he will use insignificant people, not always pastors, not always apostles, not always, but always people who have a heart and a passion and a love for Jesus that is second to none, and he can start something new in us. For some of us, maybe it's our workplaces. Maybe it's our neighborhood. Maybe it's a small group meeting. Maybe, who knows? And you're waiting for me or somebody else in leadership to give you the go-ahead when the Holy Spirit of God has been burning something for a long time. And he's just saying, do it. Does God work like that? That's the funny thing. I I tell people, the book of Acts just completely trips me out, man. Because we want to organize stuff. We want to develop flow charts, and this is how good ministry looks like, and you got to do this. And those people, they were crazy, man. They did stuff that made no sense. They prayed. God said, go. They went. Who's going to oversee that committee? Who knows? We don't care. 
We need people to go to Samaria. Philip's like, I'll go. Well, how are you going to go? What are you going to do? You going to get a paycheck? I don't know. I just, if God says go, let's go. And Philip goes, and people get saved, and things happen, and God sends them. Then, then, God, then the apostles show up later, which is totally trips me out. You know what I mean? Most of the time, I'm like, we're waiting for the pastor, the leader, to somebody to do something. We'll just all get behind. And the movement of God was so profound, it just took off, and the pastors and the leaders had to try and catch up with it, you know? Ah! And then God's doing such amazing work, he only does, he moves Philip out of the way. One day, Philip's walking along, and suddenly, he, he, God's like, hey, this is good work, but there's this one guy. He's an Ethiopian eunuch, and he needs help. And God absolutely, making no sense at a ministry's planning strategic standpoint, makes no sense. Great work is happening in this area. I want you to go see one dude. I'm like, God, we got a really good thing going here, man. Don't you have somebody else? And go just talk to one guy. I mean, it's really, God's like, no, Philip, go. And God, you know, it's amazing. The church of Colossae is like that. Didn't wait for some. Just go, just be, just do, just follow Christ. That's who he's writing to, those who just want to follow Christ. I, I thought about the first service. There's this old song we used to sing. He's looking to people, when he's writing to the church of Colossians, he's writing to people who, who this is the anthem of their heart. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me. The cross before me. The world behind me. The cross before me. The next line goes, Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, Still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. If that's the anthem of your heart, these words that are written in the book of Colossians are written right to you. They're saying, just follow me. Let's go. Let's run this race. Let's walk this journey. Let's get some things done. And so, would you like to know what he's had to say to people like you? Look at your neighbor right now. See, I've got to have interaction, all right? Look at your neighbor right now and say, I think he's talking about you. Especially those of you with tears welling up in your eyes right now. Or here, tears welling up in your eyes. Is that right? Yeah, tears. Tears in our eyes. I don't know what I heard in my brain that didn't sound like that. He's, we're talking right to you. God's talking right to you. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 reads like this. So, we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. The amazing thing about this prayer, this prayer is prayed by a person who is a possessor of God's heart. The Apostle Paul. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if I get a letter from the Apostle Paul, I'm feeling pretty good about that. Because, you know, in our earthly standards, he's a pretty high stature kind of a dude. I mean, but the important thing is not his stature as a human being. It's important with whose heart he pins those words. And one way we know it's the heart of God is because he's writing to us with a relentless heart. He says, we never stop praying for you. Doesn't that sound like the heart of Jesus? Doesn't that sound like the heart of God? We never stop. See, even while we were still far away from him, he chased after us. There's this relentlessness about the heart of God. The Bible in Isaiah says his arm is not shortened that it cannot save. There's there's this thing about God where he just absolutely refuses to quit. He absolutely refuses to slow down. He absolutely refuses to, to allow things to get in the way of what he wants to accomplish. He is relentless towards us. He is relentless for with passion and love towards us. You don't need a greater example than the person of I'm gonna ahead of myself. He's relentless. He's relentless. How, how many of you can remember somebody who, who, before you were even a Christian, prayed for you unendingly, day after day, mom, some grandma, some grandpa, some mom, some dad, who just never let it rest? And you'd be at the family gathering, and they'd be like, hey, you know, um, Jesus still loves you. Yeah, I'm trying to eat my, my macaroni salad, thanks. And they just wouldn't quit, you know what I mean? Relentless. The other thing about this possessor of, Paul's, of God's heart named Paul is he's ridiculous. He's absolutely ridiculous. You know why? He's writing an impassioned letter to people he has never met. They've never, they've never sat and ate dinner together. They've never sat and, and had interaction. He, 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 he doesn't know them. I mean, if, if, if Paul say, hey, you know, George over there sits in the third pew on the, on the, on the left side, Paul be like, uh. Yeah. But that's the heart of God. Because the Bible tells us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, his ridiculous love is this, that, that while we were away, he peered down from heaven, and he thought his Godhead was not something to be hung on to, but he willingly gave it up and became obedient, taking on the form of a servant and became obedient even to death, death on the cross, and that is ridiculous. None of us understand that. None of us get that. For people who we don't, we don't know, his love is so ridiculous. What he did know about them was they were going to treat him very badly, yet he did it anyway. His love is ridiculous. If we did not know him, he chose to embrace us. Paul did not know these people at a, at a, at a personal level, but the heart of God translates through the apostle Paul to these people, and he says, listen, God, my heart is for you. I love you. I know we don't know each other yet. Oh, man. What's amazing about that yet statement is none of us, none of us have the relationship with God that he wants from us. None of us. None of us have achieved that, that place of perfection or maturity where we have got it all together and all of it's, everything is good and I got it all. None of us have gotten there yet. And so the spirit of God is relentless and it's ridiculous because no matter how many roadblocks we put up between us and him, he just keeps climbing over all of them. 
He just keeps coming, doesn't he? And no matter what we try, I was thinking this early this morning. There's this passage of scripture, and I can't right now think of where it's at, but I remember when I heard Pastor Eric quote it a few years ago, it made my heart leap, and it just, it, every now and then it just grabs a hold of me. Because the Bible says this relentless, ridiculous love that he get, has given us makes us prisoners of hope. Dude, if you're going to be captivated by something, hope's a real good thing to be captivated by. If you're going to be enslaved to something, hope is something that's amazing that brings life and, whole, and, 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 and strength and power in the midst of very difficult, ugly, messed up. If I'm going to be captured by something, dude, I'll take hope almost every day of the week. And I can only have hope because of the ridiculous, relentless love of Jesus. Don't you want to be captivated by that? This, this prayer that's prayed in Colossians is prayed by a guy who absolutely 100% possesses the heart of God. And just in a brief sentence with a couple of phrases, we can see it come to life. He's relentless. I don't stop. He's ridiculous. We don't even know each other, but I haven't stopped praying for you. Oh, my goodness. Is that awesome? The next part of this prayer, you see what he prays. Verse 9, he says, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's amazing to me that in Paul's heart and God's heart towards the Colossian people is he's not, again, he's not praying for them to have everything they want. He's not praying for anything to go well with them. He's not praying for, 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 he's praying that they will have certain things that will get them through anything and everything. He makes no promises about a smooth and easy life. He, he makes powerful prayers about something that's absolutely ours. Something God promises us. He says, I want you to have complete knowledge of God's will. And for most of us sitting here, that's a, that's, a, that's a foreign thought because one of the most ethereal things in our lives is trying to figure out what God wants. We spend days, there. You go, go to praises some afternoon and figure out how many titles are there that are there to help you figure out what God says to you. There's this, for some reason, there's this cloud that, that, that encompasses this thing. And, and you know what? Paul wouldn't pray a prayer that he didn't think God wouldn't answer. You know what I mean? He wouldn't pray that prayer that was impossible. He, he prays a prayer that we can have complete, one translation says, complete knowledge of the will of God. This word knowledge means to have full understanding. It, mean, it means to, to have thorough knowledge. It means to have discernment and recognition about something. When I think about the word discern, that becomes a real spiritual term. You know, oh, I got the gift of discernment. Which is kind of funny because at least the nearest I can read in Scripture, uh, there is discerning of spirits, but there's no like, I'm about to fry somebody. There is no spiritual gift of discernment. Find it in the list. I just, 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 just look for one. I mean, it's, it's just not, it's, it, it, it's, it's not there. There's a, God gives certain of us certain abilities to understand things more clearly. And we have certain intuitions, but God endeavors that all of his children understand his will. That's not something ethereal or out there. But you know what the problem is with us? We refuse to take what he's already given us. 
if I were to tell you, if I were to ask the question, how do you discover God's will? What's, what, what are you guys going to say to me? Huh? Read the Bible. Yeah. God will never tell you to do anything that flies in the face of the Scripture. And sometimes the reason we struggle in this, this will of God thing becomes very ethereal to us is because we read the Bible and then we choose not to do what it says. It's kind of like my kids refusing to see. You know? Here's what happens. We get a relational conflict going on in our house or in our family or our workplace, and God says forgive, and we go, I don't think so. I don't think I can do that right now. And then all of a sudden, the will of God becomes really cloudy. Oh, I really don't know. How should I? And you go to counseling with the pastor, and you come, I really don't know how to handle that. And I was just trying to figure, and I don't, and, and, but the will of God's already revealed. He says, forgive your brother, even 70 times seven a day, and you keep trying to stop by that one and find some other plan. Some of you have problems where financial issues and stuff are concerned. And you know God says something about tithing and giving, and you keep trying to jump across that one. And then things get into trouble, and you go, I don't, what's God trying to do with me? What's God's will for my life? I don't understand. And it's all right there, has been for millions of time. And we keep trying to step by God's already known will, and we're trying to figure out what's happening. Some of you, you have days where God told you, you need to share the gospel with this one particular person at work. And every day, some cataclysmic thing happens where that person stands in your, in your face. And you're like, I really don't know what to do with that. Like we keep having problems at work. And, I, and, God, and you, you even show up into the parking lot at work and go, and as soon as you pull in the parking lot, God's like, hey, would you please talk with him? And they're like, um, Lord, you know, that's going to look kind of funny. And, and then every day, something goes wrong. Work gets in an upheaval, and you're standing right next to each other. God, tell me what your plan is. He's like, I've already told you what my plan is. Ah! And so we keep trying to find this thing, and it's ethereal because we, we don't know, we don't do what he already told us to do. And so it's plain, it's clear. And the funny thing is, the, the will of God and the person of God is like this. We take a step, and he meets us. We take a step, and he meets us. There's a, there's, a, there's a parable Jesus talked about that he says, to whom much is given, much is required. But he talks about this. He says, those who have much and use it, they'll get more. But those who are given much and don't use it, even what they have, will be taken away from them. Ooh. Ooh. Ouch. Because I'm that guy sometimes. Are you that guy sometimes? And I can't figure out, God won't give me any more of his plan because I haven't done anything with the plan he already gave me. Ooh, that's bad, isn't it? He says, he says, knowledge of God's will, he says he wants us to have spiritual wisdom. Listen to what spiritual wisdom Spiritual wisdom is this. The knowledge, now there's, a, there's an issue with understand, having, having knowledge about something. There's a whole other thing where application is concerned. This idea of spiritual wisdom brings the application facet to, to bear. Okay, the knowledge and practice of the requisites for godly and upright living. That's what Mr. Strong says spiritual wisdom is, as it's found in this piece of scripture. He says, it's not good enough just to know what to do, have knowledge of what to do. It makes a whole world of difference when you apply what you know you're supposed to do. That's a whole lot different. The next thing he says, I want you to have understanding. 
And God doesn't waste time because there's knowledge, spiritual wisdom, and understanding. He puts them all in this one thing. Because how many of you guys know somebody who's like really intelligent, but at the same time, dude, you, they, they lack the sense God gave a duck? Huh? I mean, talking to them is like reading an encyclopedia. You know what I'm saying? They got a vocabulary that's off the chart. And they wear you out, man. And they got explanation for everything. But then they can't see the forest for the trees. Or what They just, you know, just real simple. You just got to. Ah! What God's talking about, what Paul's praying for is that we would not be that person who understands a bunch of stuff, who has knowledge, but doesn't understand how to apply it. This thing I understand means to take mentally, take, take things and bring them together. We see a circumstance. We hear the word of God and we take the two things and go, shoot, that's how that works. I, we can get through this. And practically, in wisdom, I take the step and I walk it out. One place in Scripture, uh, one place, I don't think it was in Scripture. I think it was Moody or one of those guys. Who, who, who said these words? I forget. A good, Matthew Henry, good knowledge without a good life will not profit anyone. Good knowledge without a good life profits no one. I can have every kind of THD, PhD, DDD, and whatever. I almost said two other letters that you guys probably would. Yes, yes, that would be the one. And um, a Bachelor of Science degree in something. And um, they wouldn't make a lot of difference because it's not helping me or anybody else. But if I learn to take God's heart and God's mind, put it into the framework of where life is with me and with other people around me, I put the pieces together and I take the step like Peter and walk out of the boat. Even though the water seems sloshy, there will be something firm for me to stand on. And Jesus will meet me right there. I'm sweating. Is it hot in here? I don't think I'm spitting too much today. At least I haven't seen too, many, too, much, too much fly. Spiritual wisdom, understanding. The crazy thing about all of this is that it translates into something amazing. Matthew Henry says about this piece of scripture, our knowledge of the will of God must always be practical. We must know it in order to do it. Our knowledge is in a, a blessing indeed when it, it, when it is in wisdom, when we know how to apply our general knowledge to our particular occasions and to suit it to all emergencies. Christians should endeavor to be filled with knowledge, not only to the will of God, but to know more of it and increase in the knowledge of, increase in the knowledge of God and grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, according to what Second Peter writes. And so he, he, he's saying, listen, there, there, there's, there's got to be a practical side to this. If you sit in service every Sunday morning and you write down every note and, and learn every Greek word and everything else that we got going on in here, and then it, you just sit and it, it, it just it, it gets stuck into your, your Bible or whatever for the rest of the week, and it never translates into something in your life the rest of the week, we have wasted our time. It's just truth. But if you take it, the knowledge you gain, apply it with spiritual wisdom and take understanding and bring the pieces of your life and the lives of others together in the context of that, amazing things happen because verse 10 says these words. Look at verse 10 again. 
then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. You will live lie. Your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. The, 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 the knowledge that we get, the spiritual wisdom we walk in, the understanding we, we, we grow in while we're walking in this life with Jesus translates to this, a God-pleasing life. How many of you guys think that's pretty important? Huh? Honestly, if there's anything else on your gamut that's more important than that, then you probably, I don't know where you are. Because one day, the only thing that matters is running across the finish line in in, in heaven, Jesus standing there and he's saying these words, well done, good and faithful servant. That is all that matters. It doesn't matter how much money you roll back into the, into the bank. It doesn't matter how many accolades you received, how many degrees you get. How, none of that matters. What matters is running across the finishing line and hear Jesus utter those words. And Paul gives you the keys to making that happen. He says, I pray for you that you will, you will grow in the knowledge of the will of God, that you will attain spiritual wisdom saying, from the power of the Holy Spirit, and that you will put all this together and you will practically run out in your life. Oh, that's good stuff. A God-pleasing life. Not only that, he says these words, I want you to, you will have a fruitful life. And that's really important when we think about John 15, because Jesus says words like this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He makes another statement. He says, there will be some branches that don't don't produce fruit. Anybody know what happens to those branches? Huh? Snip, snip. Ooh. Let me ask you a question. When we talk about fruitful life, what are we talking about? You remember Bill Turkovich was here the first part of July. He said he went through a, he said, he, said his, his, he had his people, you know, about revival. And he, he took a poll. What does, what does revival look like to you? Do you remember him asking that question? Do you remember him being here at the end? He asked a question. Well, real revival will be, man, people will be driving, and they'll see fire coming up out the top of the church building, and they'll just be drawn here, and blah, blah, blah. And Bill's like, what are we, what? And he just, it's just kind of, he's like, and he's all, he's in all kinds of weird, he, there was all sorts of weird stuff. Because revival means something comes to life. Anywhere there's life, there's growth. And there's fruit. And God's plan for us is to bear much fruit. Think about the book of Galatians chapter 5. The book of Galatians chapter 5 reads uh, something like this. He says, you know, you don't need to be entangled with all this other stuff. And he says, he talks about what the, what the, what the works of the flesh are. Starting about verse 17, 18, somewhere in there. He says, and they're evident. And he makes a statement. These people will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God kingdom of heaven. You remember those words? And then he goes on and says, but, that's, a, that's, a, that's always a huge word in scripture. It's three letters, but it's huge. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. See, we, we would like to equate our Christian growth by bottom line statistics. How many people did I witness to today? How many people got saved at service? How many, how, how, how big was, I, I've sat in pastor circles. Well, how many of you running, Brer, brother? Huh? How big was the offering? I mean, what's your normal take every week? And we start 
boiling stuff down to just a steer statistical analysis, we miss God completely. Because God says fruitfulness is this. The Christians are reproducing themselves. He says that the love and the character of Christ is clearly seen amongst them. And if you don't bear that kind of fruit, then you're going to have it. Here's the funny part. If we would do that and concentrate on those, that other part would come. I mean, honestly, we wouldn't have any issues with church attendance. We wouldn't have any issues with church giving. We wouldn't have any issues with, because the people of God will be growing in the character of God, and generosity would not be an issue. Going out of their way to help somebody else would not be an issue. Doing, doing something truly out of love and walking in joy and in peace would not be an issue. But we try and boil it down to this and that and everything. You know what? I mean, and I know you guys want to know the productivity of how things are going. When you give, you want to know something's happening. But, dude, you give because God said to. Not because there's this bottom line statistical analysis that says, hey, that was fruitful. Because sometimes things in the kingdom cannot be assessed by natural means. It would seem really silly to me to spend three, was it, $2,500 on an airplane ticket to maybe go meet a girl in a hotel in Guthangori, Africa, Kenya. If I was just going by sheer statistical analysis, that's a bad move on all, on all kinds of levels. But in the heart and the mind of God, that investment is eternal. And I cannot make that fit some just mere philosophical paradigm that makes sense. You understand what I mean? And so God wants us to be fruitful. And he wants us to grow. We, did, we gave away, I didn't think to say this last week, I don't know why, we gave away bracelets last, last two weeks ago. My daughter and a couple other people from, from Ralston Church made gospel bead bracelets that were color-coded. Gold is, represents heaven and, and God and everything eternal and everything good and everything pure. The black represents our sin that separates us from that holy, wonderful, loving, amazing God. And the red is the blood of Jesus that covers all of our sin that gives us new life. And the white is, is, is where we've been cleansed by the, the, the power of God and the, the washing of the water, the washing of the blood of Jesus. And, and we're completely pure and clean. And then there's the next one is green. It's green. And it's green because we tell people God's given us new life and he expects us to grow. And he expects us to bear fruit. He expects us to stick our nose in his word and grow in the word and the knowledge and understand the will of God. He expects us to stick our nose in a prayer closet somewhere and pray and seek the face of God so we, we can make spiritual sense, wisdom of the knowledge of the will we've been given. And he expects us to share our faith with other people whereby growing ourselves and growing the kingdom. That's what we tell everybody. We, we give those, and 40 kids, 40 kids made first-time commitments that one night we gave away those bracelets. And we thought we were trading pastors and church leaders, kids. And Brent walked over just to the last minute and said, has anybody asked them if any of them want to give their heart to Christ? But they've never done that before. I'm like, no, we haven't really done that. He said, how many of you like to, how many of you have never done that, never made a commitment to Christ, and would like to for the first time? 40 hands. Actually, Brent said he stopped counting at 40. Which is amazing. But you know what? I don't know who the individuals in that 40 are. Maybe that night was just for one kid who was just going to become what God wanted to become. And he 
you know, he might be some, you know, who knows? Because we want to make it down to spiritual terms. He'd be the next Billy Graham. Maybe he'd be the next distance runner for the nation of Burundi and win a gold medal and standing on the, on, on the medal stand go, you know what? It's all because of Jesus I'm here. It might be he'll be a store clerk. Dishing out groceries. And the next Billy Graham happens to be in his line. On the right day, at the right time. See, I can't statistically analyze that. You see what I'm saying? Huh? So we're looking for fruitfulness. We've got to just be worried about growing in the, in the likeness and the admonition and the character of God. Because then everything else just begins to, to, to function. My wife, my wife talked about earlier, Matthew 6. Seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. Take no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worry of itself. Huh? I don't know, man. I, Amy, show me, show me the, next, the next slide up here, would you please? Look, is that it? Oh, yeah, a God-pleasing life, a fruitful life, and a growing life. That's what God, that's what God plans for us. That's what God wants for us. That's what we should want for ourselves. It comes as we... We, we, we take the will of God that we already know and begin to walk it out. And we ask God to give us the power of his Holy Spirit to discern the next part of the puzzle. That we take spiritually, we apply wisdom to it. And then we take understanding what we know about people and, things, and we, we just begin to walk out the plan of God. That leads to a God-putting life. That leads to a fruit-bearing life. That leads to a growing life. And God always intends for us to grow. He never intends us to stop growing, Ever. I don't care how long you've walked with Jesus. You will never. If the apostle Paul writes things like this, I'm still chasing that for which I was apprehended for. And he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, you ain't never getting there. You better not stop desiring to pursue God and grow in Jesus, ever. It better never become status quo, rote spirituality, because if it is, it's not not God that fell, fell off the path, it's you. And his words doesn't change. His spirit doesn't change. He don't change. He's still at work. And he intends for you to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. I might be schizophrenic a little bit, but I'm not, I'm not sorry. For those of you who are visual, let's boil it down like this. Picture your, your life as a funnel. God will pour in his knowledge of his will, predominantly through his word. He'll ask you to endeavor in a prayer closet to gain a certain amount of wisdom about that knowledge you've been given. And he'll supply understanding of what's going on around you. And out of that funnel, that mixture of those things being poured in, out of that funnel will come a life that is God-pleasing, a life that is fruitful, and a life that is growing. See, I need stuff like that every now and then. I need to be able to picture really what's going on. I don't know if anybody else you are that way. I, I, can, I can look at the words, and sometimes it doesn't make sense. I'm like, okay, if I see a picture, that makes perfect sense to me. Start pouring stuff. You ever use the, and you're pouring stuff in there, and boy, it just, and it works, right? That's what your life needs to be. And that's what God wants out of you. Let me remind you of something. I want to share this. I talked about what Matthew said. Good knowledge without a good life would never profit. 
The Bible Exposition Commentary about this passage says this, true spiritual wisdom must affect the daily life. Wisdom and practical intelligence must go together. All, everybody say all. All Bible truths are practical, not theoretical. Francis Chan one time said this, I, wonder, you know, I wouldn't be really pleased with my kids if I gave them a list of things to do. Like, if, clean your room, you know, clean your room. And I come back a few hours later, and the room's still a mess, and my daughter sends me, she says, you know, Dad, we've thought about what you had to say. We've gathered in a small group, we've discussed and we've debated how that works and what that really looks like. We've memorized the, 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 the requirements you've asked us to. We, I can quote one, two, three. I can quote all of them. I can do all. And, and we, 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 we've, we've prayed about it and we've talked. He said, if I walk back in that room and that room's still not clean, as their daddy, I'm not real happy. Doesn't matter how much they talked about it, no matter how much they debated about it, no matter how much they, I'm not real happy. All, all biblical truth is practical. It is to be lived out. Not just thought about, not just theorized about, not just debated about. It is to be lived out. And he says, he goes on to say these words. Practical obedience means pleasing God, serving him and getting to know him better. Any doctrine that isolates the believer from the needs of the world around him is not a spiritual doctrine. D.L. Moody often said, every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. That means it's got feet. It's going somewhere. And so if we gain the knowledge of the will of God, if we gain spiritual understanding and wisdom, and we don't, it does not translate into a life lived out, pleasing, fruitful, and growing in the, in the admonition and the nurture of the, the name and the, the person of Christ, it's worthless. It means nothing. There is no separation between learning and living. True spiritual wisdom must affect the daily life. When you think about these, and I'm just... We are not following some... This song came up again. Doggone one of my notes, and I hate it. We are not serving a God who's out there somewhere. We are serving a God who is very near to us. And so near to us, he is in us. It is in him that we live. It's in him that we move. It's in him that we have our being. I wish Bette Midler would get saved. I hate that song she sings. God is watching us. One of of the guys who was helping us in Africa had that as his ringtone on his phone. And the first few days, I was like, I I know that song, but I can't think what song it is. What song song is that? What song is that? What song is that? I said, Peter, what's that song? God is watching us. I went, Because it stinks theologically. If you like that song, I don't apologize for saying that because it stinks. God is not watching us from a distance. He is so near to us, he stepped out of heaven to get here. 
And he is very much involved in the the affairs of men. And he's very much involved in your life. And he is not paying attention from someplace distant. He is right here, right now. And a lot... Go ahead, that's fine, go ahead. You get a preacher on a roll, he can't hardly stop. But listen, he endeavors to be near to others. You know how? From your life. And if you never live it, they never know he's near. If you never speak it, they don't know he loves. If they don't, if they, how, how can they hear without a preacher? And he's not talking about a pastor or an apostle. He's talking about an, just an, an everyday proclaimer, follower of Christ. That's what he's saying because we think a preacher is a pastor. No, a preacher is a person who follows Christ just proclaims the truth where to go. I'm, I am not just a preacher because I have the name pastor for my name on certain official correspondence that leave out of this church. I'm a preacher because the truth of God lives on the inside of me. It's going to come out somewhere, somehow, someday, some, sometime. Hopefully all the time. And listen, like God put, picked on those people from Colossae to share his truth with, who were overlooked, kicked to the outside. Today, he looks down in Hallsville, near Hallsville. He looks at you and he says, listen, let's, let's get home with this. Some of you today need to operate on what you already know. You just do. You need to, to operate in a, in a generous heart. You need to operate in a forgiving heart. You need to, to operate in, in, in a heart that, that, that proclaims the gospel. You need to, 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 to operate in a place where, where God just has already revealed his stuff to you. Some of you, you just simply need to stop worrying. You know, there are 365 different, different admonitions in the scripture that say, do not fear, don't be afraid, don't worry, don't be dismayed. You know why? Because God knew every day we'd have an opportunity to do that. Every day. And we choose to often be in fear and worry, and then God's like, I can't work with that. I already told you not to, and you insist on doing it. Why don't you stand up with me? If you're sitting here today and you're like, man, I don't know. I'm trying to figure, the will of God does seem, the the will of God does seem strange to me. The will of God does seem like it's out there and I can't make sense of it. Maybe you feel like, man, I've been a spiritual egghead. I've gained a bunch of knowledge, but I'm not done much with it. Today can be a day it all changes. The last minute in the first service, I changed my plan for altar call. I'm going to do the same thing here. You know what? And it's going to make you really queasy and squeezy. Okay? So I want you to look around here. You know, you know Paul, Paul wrote to a group of people he did not know very well at a personal level. And he was used by God to speak into their lives what God's heart and what God's intention and to pray a prayer over them. Okay? Look around this building right now. Just look around. Look around. Just look around. Get a, good, get a good view. Look around at people. And those of you who are already looking around backwards or back or front, so people in front of you can see your face. Once you get a good look, just look around real quick. Okay? Now, lock in on somebody you don't know very well. Look around here. Now, lock in on somebody you don't know very well. You got them locked in? Are you locked in on them? You know what you got to do now? You got to go be Paul. I want you to go over and pray for them. First of all, I want you to make sure they're on the right journey. 
Second of all, I want you to pray the same kind of prayer Paul prayed for the church at Colossae. I want, I want to pray for you that you will have full knowledge of the will of God, that you will have spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want to pray for you that your life will be fruitful and growing. You know what? Ask them how else you can pray for them. What's going on that they need spiritual, to be able to have the understanding and put the pieces together so they can walk things out with Jesus. And right now in this moment, be the body of Christ to one another.